Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which is on page 967 if you're using one of the red Bibles. We're continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. We laid it out in 22 messages. This is number 16 of 22, so we're getting close to the end. And our text this morning specifically is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, through the end of the chapter, verse 16. And if you're able, I'll invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Do we, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. As He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Do you remain standing as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. As we read this this morning, we want to be a people who are continually shaped by your word. We thank you, first of all, that you did not remain silent. You are not the God who has created the world and abandoned it. But the God who has created the world, who has redeemed us through Christ and then has given us your very words. So would you this morning 
empower the preaching of your word. My weaknesses are well known to me and no doubt to others as well. But your power is great. So would you empower the preaching of your word so that it might be a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power in our midst? And would you empower our hearing? Would you allow this not to be a time where we hear things that just roll off our backs, but that they would penetrate our hearts, that we would be changed, that we would be made a congregation that is becoming more and more and more like Christ, more conformed to His image from one degree of glory to another. We pray this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. One of those realities that we often rightly rejoice in is the fact that we have been united with Christ by faith. One of the things we say often is that we have been united with Christ <clears throat> by faith, so that's what's true of Jesus has become true of us as well. He died for sins through union with Christ. We also have died to sins. We have died with Christ. Or we celebrate that He was raised from the dead, but we can also speak of ourselves through union with Christ. We have been raised, Paul says, to walk in newness of life, and one day we too will be raised from our graves and overcome death and be with Christ in resurrected bodies forever. I think that's a truth that, that no doubt weighs on our mind in a glorious way and we rejoice in, but there's another reality that union with Christ brings about that we may be tempted not to think much of. And that reality is that because you and I, are individu as individuals, are united with Jesus Christ, our union with Christ means we have also been bound to one another. In other words, as individuals who know Jesus as Lord, we have been united together. We have been made one. So think, for example, of the imagery that the Bible uses about the church. Aaron pointed out, Last Sunday night, as we gathered in this room for a time of prayer, Aaron pointed out uh, that, that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, you are God's temple, that the you there is y'all, right? It's plural. You all are one temple. Or think of 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4, where Paul uses the imagery of individual believers being one body as if we are all individually parts of one body. And he says it's only when all the parts with, with, the body, which, with, with which the body is supplied, when all of them are working properly, it's then that the whole body grows and is built up in love. Or think of the imagery that Jesus introduces us to. When someone says, your mother, your brothers are here, and he says, my mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who do the will of my Father, introducing the idea that the church is one family. We could lose count, I think, of the number of times that Paul references my brother or my brothers, my sister or my sisters. Obviously, he believed this. And so, even if then this morning we say, okay, I acknowledge it, I get it, we are united with one another. As individual believers, we're one body united together, dependent on one another so that when each part is working properly, the whole grows. And you say, well, that's fair. Now I acknowledge it. But what does that mean? What responsibilities do we have toward one another? What, what, what duties? 
what care must we show to one another? In other words, if we get fully on board with the idea that, okay, as individuals, we're one, what does that mean? What does that practically look like as we live the Christian life in recognition that we're united to others bound together in Jesus Christ? And I think that 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16, our text this morning, goes a long way in answering that question. In other words, in our text this morning, Paul, as he speaks of himself, as he speaks of Titus, as he speaks of the Corinthians, gives us a really good picture of what it looks like for individual Christians to live with a full awareness that we are united with one another. In this text, and you, you no doubt noticed it as we read it, Paul unveils his affections, unveils his emotions. We see him speaking of his joy, of his comfort, of being downcast, of his hope. And my hope is that when we work through this text, we're able to see those things and then incorporate that very thing into our lives as well. Now, before we dive into that, because I do want to uh, highlight three things out of the text that, that we see, but before we dive into that, <clears throat> let me explain to you what's going on in this text. Because if you just come in and you read this text, there, there are a lot of elements that can be very confusing to you. What is Paul talking about? He was in Macedonia and he's downcast. Fighting's without and fear is within. What's he talking about? Being eager to see Titus or sending a letter or grieving the Corinthians with the letter or being rejoiced over their repentance. Repentance over what? What in the world is going on here that Paul's talking about? I want to try to answer that because I think we can answer that by looking back at 1 Corinthians 2 and then looking at some details in this text as well. We can reconstruct the scene that, that is causing this part of 2 Corinthians 7 to be written. Now, if you've been with us for a while and you remember 1 Corinthians 7, you may say, Lee, you've already told us. Because when I preached 1 Corinthians 2, we drew a lot from 1 Corinthians 7. And if so, this is going to be a reminder to you. If you just don't want to join in with us, let me show you what's going on, I think, in this text. If you'll turn back, probably just one page in your Bible, to 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we can reconstruct what's going on so that the writing of this text makes sense. And the story starts with Paul at some time in his interacting with the Corinthians making a painful visit to them. We know he made a painful visit because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now, what most likely happened is that when Paul went to be with the Corinthians, while he was among them, one man specifically opposed him or maybe even attacked him verbally or the like, but, but minimally stood against him. We know one man did this because in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul will single out one individual. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it, not to me, but in some measure, not put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, Paul says, this punishment by the majority is enough. So there was an individual who stood against Paul. But not only that, it seems that that individual seemed to rope in the Corinthians in some measure. That could have taken one of two routes. Either when this individual opposed Paul, maybe even verbally attacking Paul, either some indiv individuals from the church were caught up in that, and joined him in that, him being the ringleader, them following him. Or, and I think this may even be more likely, or 
the church as a whole stood idly by. They did nothing. They said nothing. They watched Paul be attacked. They watched Paul be opposed. And then Paul left. And when Paul left, Paul decided, as 2 Corinthians 2 1 said, he decided, I will not make another painful visit. What he decided to do instead was to write them a letter. And the letter that he wrote them was a letter that he knew was also going to be a painful letter to read. It was a letter he acknowledges in our text that calls them to grieve. Most likely that letter was a letter saying, when this individual opposed me and you all stood quiet and idly by, it gives the appearance that you are with him and against me. He calls them out for their sin and their lack of discipline of this man, of their need to repent themselves, and he gives the letter to Titus, and he sends Titus on his way. And until he heard from Titus, it drove him crazy. We know that because if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul mentions a time when he was in Troas, and when he was in Troas, he was eager, hoping he would see Titus there, and Titus would have news as to how they received the letter. But here's what he writes, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul, the apostle, the guy that loves preaching the gospel, loves it, is in Troas, a door is open, opportunity to preach the gospel, maybe they're even setting up venues for him to do so, and his spirit was so restless within him because it just bothered him. He was so eager to know, how did the Corinthians receive my letter? Did they get it and, and, and write me off? And say, Paul, what you're fearful we were doing, we really were doing, we're against you. He wanted to hear from Titus. And he was so restless that he said, Titus is not in Troas, I'm leaving Troas, and I'm going to go to Macedonia. And when he went to Macedonia, he found Titus. That brings us to our text. If you turn back to chapter 7 again. <clears throat> Listen to chapter 7, verses 5 through 7 again, and we can begin to complete the story. Chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul, Paul not only is he having some, some adversaries against him in Macedonia, but more than that, the fear within, the restlessness of spirit that had caused him to leave Troas in the first place. But then he writes this in verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. He finally found Titus in Macedonia. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So Titus sees Paul, Paul rejoices, gives him a big hug, no doubt. And then Titus says to him, Paul, I have great, great news for you. They did not get that letter and respond to it by saying, Paul, you're right. We are with that guy. We're against you. We want nothing to do with you. Rather, Titus communicates to him, brother, they long for you. They mourn that they caused you pain, and they have a zeal for you. They want to walk with you, and Paul rejoices. And Paul says that's not only what then happened <clears throat> 
when they got the letter, they also repented. We know if we go back to chapter 2, which we don't have to, if we go back to chapter 2, they repented by disciplining that man who was opposing Paul. Paul makes the reference to this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, the letter he sent by Titus, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I'll rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you felt godly, no, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul says, what, what, what made me rejoice was the letter caused you to repent. And one of the things that the repentance meant, as I, as I mentioned, was the discipline of this man. That's why when you read verses 10 and 11, when Paul lists the ways that they repented, he mentions punishment. And it sounds weird, but I think it makes sense. Let, let's look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So, so, so this repentance that you demonstrated, let me lay out what it looked like. What eagerness to clear yourselves. That, Paul, we are not against you. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Doesn't that seem a weird way? I called you to repent, and you repent by eagerness to punish? But what it is was the punishment of church discipline, which is a punishment that is meant only for redemption. In other words, they put this man out of the church, punishment, in hopes that he would repent. And indeed, we know he did, because you can go back to chapter 2 and see that. So Paul ends verse 11 then, at every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. You're not against me. You've shown that. You are with me and for me and eager to see me. And then in verses 12 through 16, the way that this text finishes, it's as if everybody now is joyful. So though I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that the earnestness, your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I wrote this letter because I wanted you to see your holiness, and you've shown it. Verse 13, therefore, we are comforted. Paul's comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed. Whatever boast I made them about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is greater. He remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And so Paul reigns, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Happily ever after, right? It is a glorious text, and it is a cause for rejoicing. And I think all of that that we provided, I think makes sense of that. And we don't have to go outside the text to reconstruct that story. We just see the, the details here in the text. So at this point, I guess we could say, well, we know what the text is about. We understand it. But there is something here that I don't want us to miss, and I've mentioned it already. It's those realities of what it looks like to walk together as believers bound in Christ. So let me note, from looking at Paul's interactions with them, Titus, the Corinthians toward them as well, what it is that we as believers need to do to walk well as a people bound together in Christ. Number one, we open our hearts pour out our affection for one another, and invite it in return. We open our hearts, pour out our affection for one another, and invite it in return. 
This is one of the things that you see clearly in our text, that Paul is opening his heart. He's unveiling his affection, sharing them very clearly. Notice how the text begins in verse 2. He actually calls them, make room in your hearts for us. Now, now what's important here is when Paul's writing this in chapter 7, verse 2, I think he's speaking to the majority, maybe even the vast majority of the Corinthians. You see, when they repented, it seems there was still some small segment of them maybe that, that weren't repentant, that were still against Paul. There has to be something like that because that alone makes sense of our first six chapters in this book where Paul's defending his ministry against those who are standing against them. But right now, starting in chapter 7, verse 2, and this is going to go all the way through chapters 8 and 9 as well, Paul is writing to the majority of the church that is repentant, that, that did respond well to his letter, that's eager to be with them, and he's describing to them, this is how you live the Christian life. Now, he's going to get back to defending his ministry in chapter 10. But, but if it's true then that in verse 2, Paul is talking to the majority of the church that's already zealous for him, that already is eager to be with him, and he's saying to them, make room in your hearts toward us then you can see that he's calling as believers, we need to be those who are always more and more growing in our affection for one another. Make room in your hearts for us all the more. And he makes it clear, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. But then listen to the way he expresses his affection for them. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. This is not Paul wanting to, to measure this in small amounts. You're in my hearts, to live together and to die together. In verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. In verse 9, he shares he's comforted. I mean, sorry, in verse 6, he shares he's comforted. In verse 7, he mentions the comfort he feels because Titus is comforted by you. At the end of verse 7, I rejoice. In verse 8, he feels regret that his letter caused him to grieve, although he, he didn't ultimately regret it because he repented. In verse 9, he rejoiced. In verse 13, he speaks of his own comfort and the joy of Titus. In verse 15, he talks about Titus's affection for them. And then in verse 16, he ends saying, I rejoice. This is not an individual who is somehow reserved in his affections toward other believers. And interestingly, and I noted this in the book of Philippians, but this is not exceptional. We, we can be tempted sometimes when we read these texts to say, <clears throat> Paul and Titus and the church of Corinth must have had a very unique relationship where they really expressed their affection and care and love for one another, but, but that was not common outside of that. But then what do you do with the Thessalonians? When Paul talks about leaving their presence, he talks about the fact that he was torn away from them. Or he writes to the Philippians that he held them in his heart. He says to the Galatians that he acknowledges they love him so much, when Paul had an issue with his eyes, he says, I know that you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's a brother who's pretty confident in their love, isn't it? Now, we can either say then that all of these examples of deep and abiding love 
that Paul has for the churches and calls on them to have for him as well and one another. We can either say that all of these examples in the Bible are real serious exceptions, or we can say the Bible is picturing for us what normal Christian living is supposed to look like. And I think it's the latter. As believers bound together, you and I should open our hearts, pour out our affection for one another, and invite that in return. And so it's worth asking, does what we see in Paul look like you and me? Do we think this way, act this way, speak this way? Now, we may say, well, that's just not who I am. But I got good news. You can change. Right? Because I think being conformed to the image of Christ means that we're always changing, becoming more and more like the image we see in the biblical text. And you might say, I don't know. I mean, is, is, that, is that right? Should, should we, as men, do we express our affection for one another? And enters Paul saying, you are in my heart to live together and to die together. That's not reserved. My mom, her dad, became a believer only at the end of his life. He had lung cancer. When he was baptized, you could see in the picture, he already had lost all his hair. He was going through chemotherapy. The chemotherapy didn't work. He died. So for most of her life, growing up with him, he was an unbeliever. My mom, I remember growing up, would say about her dad, he never told me he loved me, but I knew he did. No one could ever say that about Paul. Paul's not reserved. He's outright, I have opened my heart towards you, open your heart toward me. You're in my heart to live together and to die together. Titus's affections, they're on the rise for you. Do you see what he's doing? Opening his heart, pouring out his affections, and invite the same in return. I think that's what the church looks like as individuals bound together. Second, we find joy in others growing in holiness. We find joy in others growing in holiness. Now, one of the things you can see, we've noted through the text that Paul says, I, I have joy, I have comfort, I am rejoicing, I have overflowing joy. But if you'll notice, as he describes his joy, it's very much tied to their growing in holiness. So look, for example, at verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. So there's comforted. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So, so what is the basis of his comfort and his overflowing with joy? Verse 5 begins, for. That is, I'm going to tell you why I have comfort. I'm going to tell you why I'm overflowing with joy. And then he describes their repentance when they received this letter from Titus. Or look, for example, at verse 9. As it is, Paul says, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul says, you, you want to know the reason that I'm rejoicing right now? It's not because you were grieving. In some ways, I hate the fact that my letter caused you grief. I regret that I had to cause that. But the reason I rejoice is because you repented, and your holiness is a cause for me to rejoice. Or look at verse 13. Paul begins, therefore... So, so, so in verses um, 
5 through 12, he has laid out their repentance, their growth and holiness. What does that mean? Well, verse 13 says, therefore, because of this, we are comforted. And Titus has joy. His affection is on the rise. What has caused Paul's joy is their growth and holiness. And interestingly, we see the same thing from the Corinthians. Paul speaks of their grief. Why did they have grief? They had grief because of their sin. And the reason they grieved because of their sin is because it affected Paul. You see, we might say the other side of the coin, if joy for one another's holiness is one side of the coin, the way it expresses itself on the other side of the coin is that we grieve when there's sin. Because both of those recognize the fact that it is because we are bound together and because our holiness leads to the joy of everyone, when there's sin, even in one part, we grieve. When there is repentance, even in one part, we rejoice. And now you may ask the question then, because in verse 10, Paul says, he introduces these categories of godly grief and worldly grief. Verse 10, for godly grief, he says, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. In other words, Paul's acknowledging it's true that even unbelievers can grieve at sin. We see that, don't we? I remember years ago, um, sitting in church service on on Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, the the church I grew up in had a, a traditional Wednesday evening service. We just did it every year, and in that service, we would stand up and say things for which we were thankful. And I remember we were sharing things for which we were thankful, and there was an individual that I knew well, and I knew he was an unbeliever, and so as people were standing up and sharing things for which we were thankful, he stood up and said, there are many things for which I am ashamed as he began to see the, the family dynamic of the body of Christ, he was convicted. And, and he stood up and said, there are many things I've done for which I'm ashamed. And I remember vividly, I can remember where I was sitting, I mean, just locked in my mind, just tears rolling down his face. Again, an individual I knew well. And then I remember every day after that, where he just kept chasing after sin. That, it seems, is worldly grief. But how do we know the difference? If godly grief and worldly grief can both show themselves by individuals saying, I'm ashamed for what I've done, maybe even tears streaming down our faces, what's different about them? Verse 10 gave us the answer. Do you see it in the very first phrase? For godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief not only mourns for our sin, but it takes the extra step of asking this question. Now, what do I need to put in place so that this doesn't happen again? Do you see, that's a measure of, I want to turn from this. I'm not just sad about it. Godly grief doesn't say that that I'm sad that I looked at pornography, or or I'm sad that I'm, once more, I'm starving myself to chase after a certain body image. I'm sad that I've done this, or I'm mourning that I've done that. Godly grief then not only produces that mourning, but then answers this question. And now what do I need to do and put a place to make sure I walk away from that? And as Paul pointed out, not an 85% success rate plan, but a plan to go, I don't want to do it anymore. That's what godly grief produces, that I don't want to do it anymore. 
And that's what Paul had seen from the Corinthians. And so he rejoiced. And and so it is for us. If we take the metaphor that the Bible gives us seriously, the metaphor of us being a body, then then think about a literal body. Do you ever find that, that maybe one organ or one part of your body isn't functioning well? And you think, I don't care. Of course you care. If your pancreas stops producing insulin, you care because the doctor says you have diabetes. And if somehow, maybe through diet or whatever it is, I don't know, I'm already saying more than I understand. If at some point your pancreas starts functioning again and the doctor said you're cured by diabetes, you don't say again, I don't care. You rejoice, don't you? And if you do rejoice, you don't say, but my pancreas quit working for a while. I think I'm going to let him feel some punishment. Let my pancreas feel a bit isolated, right? Let him know he's distant. Of course not, right? No, because that's as absurd as that. It is right that you laugh. It is equally absurd that one of us could repent and the rest of the body respond by saying, we're going to let you feel distant for a bit. Don't you keep feeling the weight of that? No, we rejoice. We rejoice. And when a part of the body is walking in sin, we love them enough to run after them, just like we would go to the doctor and say, something in me is broken, and it needs to be fixed. We find joy in others growing in holiness because our personal holiness is not all there is. We've been bound with others. Finally, number three. We love others in all the way that Scripture demands. We love others in all the ways that Scripture demands. Now, that's a very broad statement, isn't it? That's like, you know, one of my texts is, obey the Bible, right, or something. Like, that's not a helpful point, is it? And here I'm saying we love in all the ways that Scripture demands. Well, let me explain to you what I mean by that. One of the things that I think is striking about this text is the ways that Paul is expressing his love. And, and the reason it's, it's, it's um, I think, astounding, and the reason it's catching is because the text that Dave read earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, was written by this author. Interestingly, to this very group. So in the letter prior to this, that we have in our Bibles, to this same group, Paul had said about in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians to describe to them what love is and what it looks like. And he had said a number of things. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Do you not see that in this text? He's rejoicing that they've turned from wrongdoing. Interestingly, Paul also says, love keeps no record of wrongs. I think in the ESV it may be translated irritable. But, but as crazy as it is to say, keeps no record of wrongs really is a better translation. Love keeps no record of wrong. So think about this. The Corinthians really did sin against Paul. Paul was opposed. They should have done something. And instead, they were either swept up in the opposition or remained silent when Paul took it on the chin. Now, you think for a second then. Paul has taken that from them. For an individual who says, maybe we've heard this before, I don't want to love because I've been hurt. Paul is hurt by the church. Now, are the Corinthians, when they repent, when they express to Titus, as um, Paul says, what is it there in verse uh, 11? When they express to Paul 
their zeal, their indignation, their, their, their willingness to punish, their, their, their eagerness to be with Paul again? Are they eager to be with him? And are they thinking to themselves, Titus, we're repentant. Tell Paul we're repentant. Tell Paul we're going to exercise discipline. Tell Paul we love him. Tell Paul we have zeal for him. We want to be with him. But are they sitting there saying that nervous that Paul says, that's good to hear, but I've already written you off? No. They're not nervous about that. Because Paul, that very apostle, had expressed to them, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things. You see how Paul is actually doing the very thing that Scripture says that he wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that love must do. But, but that's not where it stops. Love also, Paul says, hopes all things and believes all things. Love requires that we look at one another and we do not assume the worst, we assume the best. And note what Paul does. Paul has, has been so, so pained by these individuals that when he was opposed and when these individuals remained silent, Paul actually left them. It was so painful that Paul not only left them, but Paul decided not to come back and instead to give Titus that letter to take to him. Now, what was Paul saying? When Paul gave that letter to Titus, was he saying something like this? Titus, take this letter to them, but good grief, who knows what they're going to do. They are a terrible group. You saw what they did. They always fail me. They always let me down. I mean, have you read 1 Corinthians? They are not a good people. They are doing all kinds of terrible things. They get a bad history behind them. So who knows? Good luck. Nope. That's not what Paul was doing. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. These have been a people who have a record of failure. They have a record of now not standing when they should have been defending Paul. And Paul gives a letter to Titus calling through repentance and he goes, let me tell you what's so great about these people. He was boasting. And that's not a one-time thing. Look at verse 16. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Again, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you might want to say to Paul, why? Why have confidence? Because he has confidence in the God who has redeemed them and the God who indwells them and the God who has united them with him. Paul is giving us a picture in this text of what love looks like. He's living what he preached. We could add to this as well. Love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't boast or, or envy, right? I think the ESV actually translated resent. No, keep no record of wrongs. Same idea. But what I want to say to us is this. Let's not only acknowledge the reality that we then are united together in Christ. We are one if we are in Him. But let's live it out. Let's, let's carry out the responsibilities that the Bible keeps modeling for us. And one of the places it models is right here. What that means is then, and I want to apply this just again, as we've said, but in a very practical way. Let's be a people who open our hearts to one another. Let's be a people 
who lavish our affection on one another. And let's be a people who then invite that in return. I want Cornerstone Community Church to be able to read Paul write, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together and think to ourselves, that doesn't sound strange. That sounds like what I experience in this body. Let's be a people who pursue joy in pursuing corporate holiness. And, and, and no, that doesn't necessarily mean that we go around to everybody every Sunday and say, pursue holiness, be holy, quit doing if you're doing anything bad, quit it. Let me tell you a way that I was encouraged to pursue holiness last week. After the service, I, I walked down, I began to strike up a conversation with one of my brothers in Christ, and we were talking, he asked me how my week was going. I was mentioning some, some, just some struggles I'm having, uh, just a, a struggle to persevere in some ways, um, uh, just because of some, some things that have caused me to be downcast. And he shared with me, he's an older brother, so he shared with me his experience of how he found certain struggles and how he's trying to adapt and, and live and, and walk in light of them. And then he did this. He pointed out to me ways that he has seen the Spirit of God working through me for the good of the body. And I tell you, I walked out of here last week thinking to myself, I want to persevere all the more. I want to pursue love for Jesus and his people all the more. There was nothing in him that said, be holy, quit sinning. But everything he did was about encouraging my holiness. And boy, it brought me comfort. And then finally, love as to all the ways that the Bible demands. Jesus actually told us explicitly, if you want them to know that you're my people, they will know when you love one another. And so let's just do this. And if you say, how do I do it practically? Read back over 1 Corinthians 13. I want that to be me. Or read what Paul's doing in this text. And so this morning, I'll say, first of all, if you're here and you're not a believer, everything that I'm saying, you're standing on the outside of that. You've not been united with Christ, and so you're not united with believers. But, but we're not saying this because we want you to remain on the outside. In fact, I want you to come in. If you're not a believer, I want to plead with you this morning to recognize this. We're all sinners that were under the judgment of God, waiting for the day of judgment where God will pour out His wrath on all those who have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But the good news is this. God sent His Son, who lived the perfect life we haven't lived, who died to pay for our sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day, so that if you this morning will turn from your sins, repent, and trust in Him. Place your faith in Christ as your only hope and the, and the reason that you can be forgiven of your sins. The Scripture says that you will be saved, believing in your heart that, that Jesus is Lord, confessing with your mouth, God raised Him from the dead, that He is your Lord. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to call you to place your faith in Christ. There's nothing magical you have to do. Walk an aisle, pray a certain prayer, just place your faith in Christ. And then, make that known by being baptized. That's how we publicly, because I can't see it if you believe, well, how do I make it known? By being baptized. That's how you profess your faith publicly. So if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you say, I, I would like to talk to you more about that, make sure I'm understanding it right. I would love to talk to you. Probably your neighbor would love to talk to you. If you are a believer this morning, we're going to conclude the service as we do every week 
by coming to the table. And, and what coming to the table does for us this morning is really a couple of things. One, it reminds us of why we can love. We can love and walk together in the ways that we see in this text because Christ has first loved us. And the greatest way he's demonstrated his love for us is by giving his body to be nailed to a tree to us and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So as we eat and drink together, we're remembering Christ who gave his body, Christ who shed his blood. But it's also something that reminds us of our unity together. There's a reason why you cannot eat this meal alone in your living room. Because this is a meal that reminds us of the corporate unity of the body of Christ. When Paul gives the Corinthians instructions about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together, and then he describes it. It's a meal that reminds us that our brothers and sisters in Christ are united to us. And so is there any better way for us this morning as believers to publicly and visibly profess We've heard Christ call to us in this text, and our answer is yes. By grace, through faith, we want to obey this picture here. We do that by coming to the table. So here's how we're going to end. I'm going to have a moment of silence. In that moment of silence, the band's going to come forward. They're going to get the elements. They're going to get ready to lead us in song. Tom's going to join me up front, and then we're going to get ready to make the elements available to you. And then we're going to come to the table uh, really each side respectively. So, so the overflow area to my left and the first row here are going to begin coming by and getting the elements. And what you can do is you can exit the row from the outside and then get the elements and come back in and enter the row from the inside. And then once the overflow area is done, the first side here can come and we'll just go row after row after row. If the very, very back area will go to my right and the balcony will go to my left. And then we'll come forward. And once we've all gotten it, we won't eat at different times. We'll wait until everyone's ready. And then reflecting our unity in Christ, we'll eat together and we'll drink together, professing our desire for corporate holiness by the grace of God. So let's take a moment of silence now.